Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's worldwide headquarters here in Boston. And I'm Adam Feuerstein, and I have the distinct pleasure this week of sitting right next to Damian. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Uh, sadly, I am recording some 3,000 miles away from Damian and Adam in San Francisco. It is Thursday, September 19th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. One of biotech's richest unicorns just got richer. That's Ginkgo Bioworks, which just raised money at a valuation north of $4 billion. We'll talk about what that means these days to be a unicorn. Amgen's top scientist, David Reese, visited Boston recently. And while here, he dropped by STAT for a chat about the biotech's research efforts. So you're probably familiar with all those headlines and tweets trumpeting the results of scientific studies that sound spectacular, until you click through and realize that that data comes from mice. A data scientist named James Heathers runs a Twitter account devoted to pointing out exactly that, and he joins us to talk about it. And finally, back by popular demand, a lightning round. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. So this week, a biotech company called Ginkgo Bioworks raised a bunch of money that brought it to a valuation of $4 billion or $4.8 billion, depending on whose estimate you trust. Either number is objectively a lot of dollars, and it kind of demands that we revisit a fairly timeless question. Are we sure all these private companies are worth these huge valuations? So first of all, what does Ginkgo Bioworks do exactly? So they're kind of a non-traditional biotech company in the sense that they basically use living organisms to manufacture all sorts of stuff. That includes drugs through partnerships with Roche and with others, but it also includes cannabinoids and fertilizer and all manners of things. So Rebecca, who decided that Ginkgo Bioworks is worth more than $4 billion? So that's a great question. Ginkgo raised $290 million from what the company described as all existing major investors and other new investors. So its previously disclosed backers include the likes of Y Combinator and Bill Gates. Right, but that underlines an important point when we talk about private company valuations. So what the news means is that those unnamed rich people who just bought shares in Ginkgo Bioworks did so at a valuation or at a point where if you added up the value of all the shares at that price, the company is worth more than $4 billion. But the thing about private companies, I think a good example is if you think about Pfizer, which is publicly traded, millions of shares of Pfizer change hands every single day. So if something really bad happens to Pfizer, one of their drugs gets rejected by the FDA or recalled off the market, etc. Within minutes, we will see its effect on Pfizer's valuation. Pfizer will become less valuable because of this bad thing happened. I don't wish anything bad upon Ginkgo, obviously, but if tomorrow we learned about some awful thing about their products or their work or their science, the company would still be technically worth that four plus billion dollar figure that we were talking about because its shares are not publicly traded. So that's why a lot of uh, these valuations are very out of date for private companies. I think a good example is Theranos, which was sort of technically valued at $9 billion for quite some time, even as the companies fell into a disastrous scandal. 
And to your point, Damien, I think what's interesting here is that there is a difference between a private company valuation and what a company would be valued on the public market. Let's take two recent examples you know, that we cover, um, Moderna Therapeutics and Rubius Therapeutics, two companies, biotech companies that had were unicorns, had multi-billion dollar uh, valuations when they were private companies. They went public. And their valuations now as public companies are considerably less today than they were when they were private. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that they're bad companies. It doesn't mean that they won't be successful. They may also fail. But the valuations are just different. Yeah, I think it'd be reasonable to say who cares about these astronomical dollar figures that, you know, are apparently the manifestations of people's imaginations. But it's interesting in a broad context because as people who want medicines, we depend upon like the capitalist structure by which venture capitalists invest in startups and then those startups needing more money to develop drugs want to go public because it's easier to raise money in the public markets. And if there is this schism between what private valuations are, let's say $4 billion, and then public valuations, it could damage the health of these companies and it could actually have like a knock-on effect on the whole biotech industry that we talk about so much. So I think what's interesting about the growth of private valuations and something to watch is, you know, will there be a correction in the cards and what effect might that have on what's most important probably, which is the actual science that these companies are doing? And prolific Twitter user Andy Biotech has mapped out sort of just how rough it can be these days to be a unicorn in, in healthcare. So he pulled a list of, I think, business insiders kind of closely watched unicorns. And all of them that he had listed had either seen their valuation drop or faced some sort of scandal or scientific setback. And I think it's telling just how much uh, some of these hyped companies have struggled. And it's by far not at all a biotech-specific phenomenon. I think if you read any kind of business reporting over the past couple of weeks, you've been inundated with news about WeWork, the sort of magically money-losing company that has been endeavoring to go public. And with each new headline is either an embarrassing revelation about how the company works, but the underline is that basically public markets investors who we're talking about just can't wrap their heads around the amount of money that WeWork is allegedly worth on the private markets. And so what's happening in biotech is happening in tech and is happening across the board. And it'll be interesting to see if there's a reckoning for the fleece-clad VCs we all know and love and the business they've been up to for these past few years as some of these unicorns age and need to leave the enchanted forest. And that gets to an important question, which is, why is there such a disconnect here? Are these fleece-clad VCs slightly delusional? Well, far be it for me to make any kind of diagnosis. And also, it's probably case by case, you know, whether we're talking about a biotech company or a tech company or WeWork specifically or et cetera. But I do think there is maybe a chasm in how we talk about things. The pipeline of going from an entrepreneur and a dream to selling a VC, et cetera, is based on selling the big idea. And capital was so available to startups, whether via SoftBank or whatever, just like large funds of money, that maybe some of those big ideas got a little bit bloated. And the realities of the public markets, you know, you have to disclose your financials when you file for an IPO. There are like fundamentals investors and CPAs who get involved. And I guess maybe some of these big ideas as they come under the scrutiny of Wall Street maybe weren't as big as VCs thought they were. Amgen is the oldest biotech company. And with a market value of nearly $120 billion, it's also the largest. In fact, there are only four drug makers in the entire biopharma industry that are larger than Amgen. 
But size is not always a good thing. When you're big, finding new ways to grow gets difficult. Amgen, like many of its industry peers, is struggling with some anemic sales and earnings because some of its aging products are facing generic competition. To grow, Amgen has to either develop new drugs on its own or find them through acquisitions. David Reese is Amgen's executive vice president of research and development. That makes him the biotech's top scientist and the guy responsible for helping Amgen turn a pipeline of experimental drugs into approved products that both help patients and generate big profits. So David was in Boston at the end of August, and while there, he stopped by Stats headquarters to talk about Amgen's R&D efforts. Let's listen to that interview. David, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. So David, you're a 14-year Amgen veteran, but just over one year ago, you were elevated to run the company's R&D operation. So how's it going over there? How has the year been like for you? It's been a fantastic year. I think it's probably the dream job in the industry. As I told my team when I took this job, this is a research organization that is not only part of this company, but is a bellwether for the field. And I view it as not just a job, but as a trust. It's something that I will hold in trust and that I need to then pass on to the next generation of scientists at Amgen. So, David, I have a question about R&D productivity. There are people who argue that industry-wide, the cost of creating a new drug has been increasing despite improvements in technology. Do you buy that argument? And and is that happening at Amgen? You know, I think you touch on what I think are core existential questions. And when I think about the challenges of R&D in our industry, two of the primary challenges are improving the success rates, uh, which naturally then improves productivity, and decreasing the cycle time. So much of what we've done at Amgen is focused explicitly on addressing one of those two questions. Our use of human genetics as a foundational aspect is meant to enhance our success rates. There's good evidence now that programs that flow from human genetics have a higher probability of success. We have spent great efforts in compressing our our cycle times, and I think, you know, we're achieving reductions probably on the order of three or four years now. And David, do you ever have the opportunity to hang out with other industry R&D chiefs? Uh, You know, is there like a group text that you all belong to or maybe a secret drinking spot? If such a thing existed, what would you all talk about? So there are forums where we actually do all get together. And many of the things that I just discussed in terms of how do we improve our success rates, how do we achieve an appropriate return on investment of the large expenditures of capital that are required to actually bring a new drug to market and do that in an economically viable fashion that's a solution not just for the company, but most importantly for patients and then society more broadly. So let's dig into some specific disease areas, starting with cancer. The most talked about compound in Amgen's pipeline today is AMG 510, which is a pill that targets a cancer-causing protein called KRAS, once thought to be undruggable. AMG 510 has shown some really promising but early tumor shrinking results in patients with lung and colon cancer. So tell us a little bit about how Amgen discovered and developed AMG 510 and the company's plans for its future development. You know, several years ago, we came to the view that the future of oncology, drug development, and therapeutics would be a marriage of precision oncology and immuno oncology. Within precision oncology, 
we took the conscious choice to go after what we considered holy grail type targets. And KRAS is probably top of the list. The seminal papers describing RAS mutations in human cancers were published in 1982 and 1983. It took nearly 40 years to figure out how to develop a drug against a molecule that is spherical and doesn't really have the pockets in it that you normally seek when you're developing a small molecule that can slip into those pockets and interfere with the function of that protein. It was through some remarkable structural biology coupled with incredible medicinal chemistry that allowed us to develop AMG 510. Uh, we did that uh, in very short order once we thought we had line of sight to actually getting a drug. And uh, we were able to then move through the first in human study in the clinic in less than a year. So, you know, been very, very pleased with what we've seen so far. So in disclosing that, David, you had a quote that said, Amgen, quote, still believes amyloid plays an important but complex role in Alzheimer's disease, end quote. Can you elaborate on that? Because as you know, the amyloid hypothesis has been a lively conversation in recent months. Lively is a good way to characterize it. You know, the evidence linking amyloid to the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease is very strong. There is very compelling genetic evidence uh, you know, that has emerged in the last few decades. The question is, is that the only thing that matters? And my belief is that there's probably a multi-step process. Amyloid may create an initial insult, eventually what is called a tauopathy develops. So tau deposition, creation of neurofibrillary tangles, which are one of the other hallmarks of the disease. And that process probably becomes self-propagating at a certain point. So if you're intervening on the initial insult, when the downstream event is now self-propagating, it's too late. So one of the questions that I have based on all of the evidence that is accumulated in the field is, how early would you actually have to intervene to prevent amyloid deposition to actually have an effect on disease. Perhaps it's quite early when you're 20, 30, 40 years old, not 50 or 60 years old. I think these are all of the unanswered questions that the field needs to address. And speaking of that, David, Amgen has invested heavily in genomics, genetic sequencing. Like you said, Amgen owns Decode Genetics, the Icelandic company that helps identify the human genes associated with disease. More recently, I know Amgen partnered with Utah-based Intermountain Healthcare to collect and analyze something like 500,000 DNA samples. What is Amgen getting from all of that genomic work? So the human genetics work that we're doing is, is one piece of what I call our triple threat capabilities when we think about drug discovery. A foundational element is genetics, experiments of nature that point us towards disease pathogenesis, causative genes, and drug targets. But that's just a starting point. There's then a lot of hard biology that usually has to be elucidated in order to understand how one may generate a therapeutic hypothesis. So we've spent a huge amount of effort in continually bolstering Amgen's world-class biology efforts. And then that is coupled with world-class molecular engineering, then being able to develop a drug that is suited to the target that has come out of genetics through biology and is ready for candidate drug discovery. 
And so we can't let an interview like this end without asking you a question about Amgen's M&A strategy. So feel free to drop any breaking news here. But if you can't, tell us generally about Amgen's business development or acquisition interests from a science perspective. You know, so I think we've been very clear that we are open to opportunities across you know, the spectrum, uh, you know, ranging from early technologies or early phase assets to, you know, larger transactions. You know, we have been very explicit that, you know, any sort of transaction has to make sense for Amgen shareholders uh, as well as uh, potentially other shareholders. And transactions have to really fit within the strategic envelope uh, of the company. Are they in core therapeutic areas? Are they congruent with Amgen's pipeline? Can we really bring something additional to the table? So David, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. So just last week, the Twitter account for Bio, which is the biotech industry's lobbying group, blasted out a tweet to its 90,000 followers in which it promoted a study showing that gene therapy can repair neurological damage from strokes and even improve motor function. Now, stroke is a debilitating medical emergency with few, if any, good treatment options. So if there were to be a new effective gene therapy, that would be an enormous breakthrough. But... And you knew this was coming. Once you clicked on the story linked to Bio's tweet, it became clear rather quickly that this gene therapy experiment targeting stroke was conducted in mice. That's right. And once again, (laughs) briefly held hopes dash. And we see this type of rodent bait and switch all the time, unfortunately, whether you turn on the TV or browse the Internet or scroll through social media channels or even sometimes pick up a well-respected science journal. You will undoubtedly come across headlines or articles which arguably sensationalize new treatments or even cures for cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, whatever disease, except all the research they're referring to is done with our furry mouse friends without a human patient involved. So like us, James Heathers, a data scientist at Northeastern University in Boston, was also annoyed by the misleading confluence of mouse and human science. So he decided to do something about it. And today, of course, that means creating a new Twitter account. James joins us today to talk about said Twitter account, appropriately named Just Says in Mice. James, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So James, tell us the origin story of Just Says in Mice. Why is this a thing? I'll tell you a secret I haven't told anyone else. Are you ready? I am. (laughs) We are. I was slightly hungover. Fair. Which is a great reason to start a Twitter account. And how we record this podcast many days. (laughs) (laughs) That seems perfectly fair enough to me. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision made pre-coffee in a morning where usually my ideas have absolutely no pickup whatsoever. This one did. So the account itself is pretty minimal. The tagline is, quote, the world's hardest working little scientist end quote. But you pretty much just tweet the words in mice commenting on these studies. Although I did notice the other day that you tweeted en ratones uh, in Spanish. So congrats on that. But this is not a full-time endeavor, I take it. Absolutely not. I spend maybe a half an hour every day reading press releases and things that now people send to me all the time. I get tagged into other conversations where people are arguing about animal models, which is the sort of Twitter conversation I'm normally involved in. And it just sort of spiraled 
from there. It doesn't take as much time as it looks like, and uh, I always know what I'm going to say. And yet, the account has gone viral. So Stat actually wrote a story about the account soon after it launched in April. About that time, you had something like 36,000 followers. Today, you've got almost double that. Why do you think this quirky Twitter account has become so popular? Probably because it was already a trope. It's already something that people say. Everyone's fairly well aware, within certain communities at least, that preclinical research gets overhyped and oversold. And the fact that that happens doesn't get a lot of attention from press releases and sometimes not enough attention from journalists and therefore not enough attention from readers. So I suppose I'm capitalizing on something that everyone already knew to some degree. It's just funnier when it's done by a cartoon mouse on the internet. (laughs) So any kind of virality on social media is a force of nature, and thus it adheres to the laws of physics, meaning that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And in in your case, that means there's been a recent mini backlash, perhaps, against your account with people standing up for the scientific importance of data in mice. So I guess, James, you know, do you have a fundamental problem with scientific research conducted in rodents? Not even slightly. It's a cornerstone of basic biomedical research and other affiliated fields. It's perfectly normal and it's going to continue in its great popularity and health regardless of anything that I say. What I do have a problem with is people misrepresenting it. It's never supposed to be a slight on science. Some of my best friends are biologists. <laughs> so one of our own reporters here, actually, Stats, uh, Sharon Begley, commented in a recent Twitter thread about the impact of your account. And, and, and she said, and I'll quote her, uh, every single human drug in modern times first worked in mice. It's facile to dismiss preclinical research, especially when it provides a roadmap to what may be coming. Do you agree with that or disagree? No. Perfectly straightforward statement. The only clarification I'd make is I'm not dismissing preclinical research at all. I'm dismissing it being reported and discussed badly. My favorite thing that I've seen on the back of this is people writing to say thank you. And the people who write to say thank you are people with chronic illnesses or with children who have chronic illnesses who deal with sometimes multiple times per week people telling them, I just read about a new study. Your child will be cured. You won't have diabetes anymore. Uh, They will. And continually being told that everything's just around the corner because you read it in the newspaper is a misrepresentation of the preclinical to clinical evidence pathway. So, James, just as there's a risk of sensationalizing mouse data, do you think there's a risk that we might misinterpret the mockery of sensationalizing mouse data? Well, that is a naughty problem. Probably not in my case. I think that's why there's only one joke. (laughs) Do you think that it will lead to more responsible reporting of mouse data and sort of putting it more in the context? I have no data for this at all. So speaking to it makes me slightly uncomfortable. But since maybe mid-May, I have been deluged with people sending me reporting now that feels like it's had mice tacked onto it in the way that it's being represented. They seem to be a lot more common in headlines. They seem to be a lot more common in leads. They're mentioned more frequently and earlier in the stories that are written about them. Honestly, I think it worked. I wish I had a way to prove it. It seems like it has. Well, James, thanks for your time. And if you decide to start another viral Twitter account, 
please keep us posted. Well, that's up to the rest of the world. But if everything uh, goes well like that, I'll definitely tell you. All right, Rebecca Damien, time for another lightning round. Let's start with Nancy Pelosi and her newly announced drug pricing plan. So as frequent listeners of this podcast recall, our stat colleague Lev Fasher came on the podcast last week to give us a preview of that plan. Uh, The plan was formally unveiled on Thursday. And in some ways, the plan looks even more aggressive than some of the prior concepts. Damien, explain. Well, without getting into the minutia of the detail, which I'm probably not even qualified to do, I think the big headlines here are that the Pelosi plan would cap U.S. drug payments for Medicare at an average of foreign prices, which might sound familiar because President Donald Trump mentioned a thing like that. And it would also require the federal government to negotiate the cost of 250 prescription medicines using that international price as a maximum, which would say that prices in America would necessarily be cheaper than they are elsewhere. And it would extend the negotiated price to insurers and to the commercial market at large. Yeah. And I think, you know, as Lev talked about last week, this plan, we've got a preview of this plan. It has some Democratic proposals. It has some proposals that are kind of the same sort of things that Republicans have been talking about. So now what will be interesting to see, again, as Lev pointed out last week, can Washington actually work together to do something here? Or will politics just sort of get in the way and nothing comes of this? Next up, let's talk about the Sacklers, the family behind opioid maker Purdue Pharma. They have had quite a week. Right. So, Rebecca, I think the first news that came out was a report of uh, the Sackler family and some Swiss bank accounts that were being used to conceal the transfer of millions of dollars back to themselves. Which really just comes off as a determined quest to be the most caricatured villains possible. Yeah, there's a take out there that I don't know if I necessarily agree with, but you know, something that a lot of people have reported that Purdue as a company is responsible for a smaller percentage of the actual opioids that fueled the crisis than people think. It's just, you know, a little easier to point to them than it is to point to what happens in the shadows of a boardroom at Johnson and Johnson or elsewhere. However, that being said, Rebecca, to your point, the conduct of the billionaire family that runs Purdue is not doing them any favors in terms of dispelling the arguable misconception that they played a larger role in this than they really did. It's really not. The other news that came out this week was that Purdue Pharma, they did file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and that was part of a deal to settle thousands of lawsuits alleging that the company misled doctors and the public about opioid painkillers. And I think it'll be interesting to watch as that bankruptcy moves forward, uh, sort of how it will affect the way that these settlements play out and whether it will affect sort of more claims from places and people uh, that were victims of the opioid crisis. So finally, you may recall Martin Shkreli, and you may have forgotten that he still owns a controlling interest in the company that so famously raised the price of that drug by 5,000%. Adam, how is that company doing? I'd gotten a tip that the sales force that sells that drug, Daraprim, they had earned a good bit of money as a bonus for selling that drug in the second quarter. And the company's management decided to pull back a pretty big chunk of that bonus from its sales reps. 
uh, naturally they were a little mad about that. Also finding out that based on financial statements that we obtained that that company uh, is still losing money. Now, Damien and I, last summer, I think we reported maybe the first to report that you know this idea that Martin had to start a company where to jack up the price of the drug and sort of generate millions and millions of dollars uh, that would then go to fund other drug development, that that wasn't a great business model. Um, they were losing money. And as I reported this week, uh, the company continues to lose money. So if I'm remembering correctly, the Daraprim scandal first broke through in September 2015, which feels like a lifetime ago. That's true. I mean, this was all before Martin ended up in legal trouble and getting, you know, convicted on securities fraud and now serving time in federal prison. Um, I think what it goes to show you again in this three-year time period is like this big idea that he had. Just it's not a great business model. Um, from what I understand, is that their efforts to develop new drugs, including sort of a follow-on to Daraprim, a, a better version of Daraprim, has kind of been slowed. And Martin is not the first biotech entrepreneur to find that the business is uh, is a little more difficult than you might imagine. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tepanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and any other viral science Twitter accounts we should feature on this podcast. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And as always, if you like what we do, please do tell a friend about the podcast or leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.